Well, good morning. It's a joy to be before you once again. While I get ready here, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. What I will try to do this morning and this afternoon is cover Galatians 1 verses 11 through 24. It's a little different from what's on our um, little handouts today. I will not get to chapter 2. There was just too much material. I don't want to bog you down and keep you here for too long. So I will only cover Galatians 1, verses 11 through 24. Now, this is an interesting passage. It is unlike any other I've prepared to preach from. Um, If you were to do a survey of any congregation, I doubt that anybody would have their favorite verse from this passage. It is a little mundane. It is an argument. It's a polemic. Paul made a point. He makes a proposition in verses 11 and 12. And then for the rest of the chapter, and even for most of chapter 2, he's proving that point. And that's fine, but the way that he proves it is by very mundane details about his life, his calling, um, his calling on the road to Damascus, where he went after that, how he came back to Damascus after going to Arabia. So it's a very mechanical, logistical passage, if you will. Um, But... As Paul said to that emotional farewell to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, he told them that that he was innocent of the blood of all because he did not shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God. Uh, This is in God's word. And we are preaching through Galatians. And it would be a shame and a terrible thing for me to skip over this because of the nature of the passage. It is still a wonderful passage. There's some gems in here. And so I trust that the Lord will still bless our time together. Now, we spent the last two messages in Galatians discussing how Paul's words in Galatians 1, 6 through 9 demonstrate that the gospel is of utmost importance. As Jesus said in Luke 13, 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all will likewise perish. If you remember, I... um, accentuated that we have those two options. All men, all women, all children everywhere must repent or must perish. There's no third option. There's no in-between. There's no purgatory. And so the gospel is a serious matter, more serious than life and death, for it is a matter of eternal life and death. So Paul's harsh criticisms of the Galatians in this book demonstrates how seriously he believed the situation was for the Galatians. If they rejected the gospel, they too would likewise perish. And so we talked about how Paul opened the letter with a very defensive posture and a very confrontational posture. He immediately gives the Galatians the bottom line in verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now that's quite a confident claim that Paul has made. In our our passage today, he begins to back up that claim. To this point in the book, the Galatians could simply say to Paul's claim, Oh yeah? Says who? By what authority do you say such things? Now think about that. That's a legitimate question. By what authority can any man stand and command people to believe anything under the threat of losing their never-dying souls. In a question-and-answer session from April of 2017, um, John MacArthur was asked this question. He was asked, how much authority does a pastor have over the lives of the people in his congregation? I did like his answer. He started his answer this way. He said, none. No authority. I have no authority in this church personally. My experience doesn't give me any authority. My knowledge doesn't give me any authority. My education doesn't give me any authority. I have no authority. Now, he will qualify that statement here. My position doesn't give me any authority. My title doesn't give me any authority. Only the word of God has authority. 
Christ is the head of the church, and he mediates his rule in the church through his word. I have no authority. I don't have authority beyond the scripture. I can never exceed what is written. End quote. So by what authority can I or our pastor or any other man come up here and tell you that you are one of God's creatures, that you have sinned against his just law, and that the punishment for that sin is eternal death? And the only way to escape that punishment is to believe that a man who walked this earth more than 2,000 years ago was and is the Son of God, is truly man and truly God, born of a woman yet without sin. He lived a sinless life himself, yet died the death of a sinner so that all who would call upon his name could escape the wrath of God. And the only thing you must do to realize the blessings of eternal life is believe on him. By what authority can any man say such things? It's legitimate to ask, says who? By what authority? Well, this is what Paul seeks to answer in this passage. It's as if, having said that to the Galatians, that there is one gospel and only one gospel that they must believe, he is answering that question left hanging in the air. Oh yeah, says who? Now, Paul is an apostle. He was called directly by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, not just to faith in him, but specifically to the office of apostle to the Gentiles. Many men struggle with what they ought to do vocationally, but not Paul after the road to Damascus experience. Christ told him exactly what he was to do. He said, you will be a herald of the name you once reviled. I will show Paul how much he must suffer for the name's sake. For my name's sake, that is. Paul was not taught the gospel. It was revealed to him directly by God, as we'll see today. If anyone has a legitimate reason to say, it is by my authority that I say these things, would it not be Paul? But he doesn't do this with the Galatians. He doesn't say, I said so. Now this is quite different from what others have done in more modern times. And let me give you one well-known example. On June 28th, excuse me, June 29th, 1868, Pope Pius IX held the first Vatican Council. In the eyes of the Roman Catholic Church, this was the 20th Ecumenical Council of the Church. We weren't invited, though, but it was ecumenical. In this council, among other things, the doctrine of papal infallibility was set forth as follows in Chapter 4, Article 9 of the Council's resulting doctrinal document. Therefore, faithfully adhering to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith to the glory of God our Savior for the exaltation of the Catholic religion and for the salvation of the Christian people with the approval of the Sacred Council, we teach and define as divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, and then it defines that, that is when, in the exercise of his office as a shepherd and teacher of all Christians in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church he possesses by the divine assistance promised to him in blessed Peter that infallibility which the divine redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals. Therefore, such definitions, now listen to this, this is quite arrogant, Therefore, such definitions of the Roman pontiff are themselves, are of themselves and not by the consent of the church, irreformable. So then, should anyone, which God forbid, have the temerity to reject this definition of ours, let him be anathema. That is still their doctrine today. That word anathema is the same word Paul uses in Galatians 1, 8 through 9 against those who would come preaching another gospel. It is still their doctrine today. The Pope says, you know who says? I say. 
Sure, it does say in the documents, I don't think in the section I read, but up higher in the articles, it says that that doctrine I just read was divinely revealed. But what was divinely, divinely revealed? What was divinely revealed according to them is that the Pope can say so. That the Pope has infallible authority. Keep that in mind as we walk through this passage. What Paul says is, I give you this message of the gospel because that is the message God gave me. And not only that, but this is a gospel that can be corroborated with all the other apostles in the churches in Judea. Paul's thesis, put simply, is that the gospel is of divine origin. That's the main idea here. The gospel is of divine origin. Leon Morris comments on this as follows. Paul is emphasizing the point that the gospel he preached was of divine origin. It was revealed to him by Jesus Christ, and his contacts with Christian apostles were so few that it was impossible that he derived his essential message from them. It is important to Paul that the Galatians know by what authority he brings this message of good news. The gospel is a message which originates with God the Father concerning his Son and is propagated in the hearts of men by the Holy Spirit. That is why it is utter senselessness and irrationality to reject it. It comes to us from the highest authority that it can come from. Now, if you can deny a legitimate source, it becomes easier to deny the message itself. But Paul labors at length at this point in the letter to show the Galatians that he has a trustworthy source. And he shows that it is not some secret knowledge that he alone possesses. He shows that others can corroborate with his message. So the Galatians have every reason to believe Paul's gospel because of where it came from. So that is the view of this passage from the mountaintops. Let us go down now to the details to see how Paul shows that his gospel, which he preached to the Galatians, was of divine origin. Paul supports his thesis that the gospel is of divine origin in the following ways, and this will form the basis of our outline. Number one, he highlights his unlikely calling as a previous persecutor of the Christians. He highlights his unlikely calling as a previous persecutor of the Christians. Number two, he explains his isolation from the other apostles early in his calling. He explains his isolation from the other apostles early in his calling. Now his argument continues on, as I've already mentioned, all the way through, uh, most of the way through chapter 2, and we're not going to get to that today. Um, but in that chapter, at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the third part of his argument that we'll cover next time is that he demonstrates that he was accepted without question by the other apostles. So let's take a look, uh, let's break down his thesis. His thesis is found in Galatians 1, 11, and 12. So turn your eyes to Galatians 1, verse 11, as I read. Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. What Paul sets here sets the tone for our entire passage and beyond this morning and afternoon. He started this letter with a strong confrontational tone and established quickly that the gospel that he preached to the Galatians is the only gospel. He now moves to give assurance to his audience while providing defensive strikes against his opponents. It is obvious that we are coming into this controversy after it began. 
Words have already been exchanged. Paul starts not by defending the gospel itself, but by defending how he received it and his own calling as an apostle. It follows that there were likely opinions in his opponents that Paul had received his gospel from the earlier apostles, maybe other Christians, and had misunderstood the message that he was given. So what Paul wants to do first in this section is to put to bed that, uh, uh, that slander. Paul makes this bold claim that he is a New Testament prophet, bringing the word of God to the people of God by direct divine revelation. Whereas he was concerned in the last passage that we covered last time about the importance and uniqueness of the gospel, he is now moving on to the veracity of the gospel. So when his opponents say to Paul, oh yeah, says who, Paul starts not by saying, I say so, as the Pope might say, nor does he borrow from the authority of the other apostles that they agreed with, apparently. He says, God says so. So let's look at how he frames verses 11 and 12. The beginning of verse 11, he says, For I would have you know. This is not part of his proposition, but more of a preamble or introduction to it. In common language today, we might use similar phrases. We might say, as a matter of fact, or in reality, or if you're of a, of, of a, of a younger generation, you might say, literally. It's used a lot by our Gen Zers, isn't it? What we're saying when we use the, these phrases is that the thing we are about to say is really, really true. We're emphasizing the veracity of what comes next. Paul's statement here adds an element of solemnity to what he is about to say. It is a sort of guarantee of what follows, that it's absolutely true. And so he's saying to the Galatians, as a matter of fact, for your information, I solemnly swear that I did not receive that gospel I proclaimed to you from man. Now, some commentators here say that what um, they say that Paul's language does not quite rise to the level of an oath. I don't have an opinion on that personally. Um, be that as it may, one thing is clear is that Paul is taking a defensive posture. Words have already been exchanged in this controversy and they have come to his ears and he has to defend himself. Something has been going on in the churches of Galatia. And this something is threatening the gospel witness in that place. And it's obvious, based on how Paul is defending the gospel and himself, that he was the subject of much of the attacks. And it's easy to see why, because as I said before, if you can discredit the messenger, you can more easily discredit the message. It seems that Paul was being accused of bringing a gospel to the Galatians that was indeed from man. And this puts him in a defensive position and in need of not just defending the gospel, but of defending himself and his call to the apostolic office. So he starts with his defense. He starts this defense rather with a solemn guarantee that what he is about to say is absolutely true. Now, on the other hand, the very next word after this in the ESV is brethren. So he appears to be taking a defensive position, but he calls his audience brethren. It's clear then he's not speaking to his opponents. He's speaking to those Galatians he wants to win over. And just as he came out strongly against the Galatians in the very first verses of this book, but then extends those blessings of grace and peace to them right after that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see Paul's graciousness towards the Galatians in calling them brethren. Now, this is a pattern that Paul exhibits throughout this passage. He speaks graciously to those he wants to win over, 
while at the same time speaking against his adversaries without addressing them directly. Now, I haven't searched this out in detail in the entire book, but to my knowledge, Paul does not address um, directly his opponents in this letter. His concern is for those Galatian Christians who are being troubled by these distorters of the gospel who crept in after Paul's departure. And so he calls them brethren. Next, we have the substance of which Paul prefaced with his guarantee. The gospel preached by him is not according to man. It's not after man. It does not originate with man. It is not of human origin. He then clarifies and expands on what he means by this as we get into verse um, 12, where he says, For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Paul denies human origin, and he denies human agency. His gospel was received by direct divine revelation. We need, to, uh, we need to qualify that, though. I don't believe that this means Paul didn't learn anything from any of the Christians that he came into contact with. So, for example, if you remember his Damascus Road experience, he was blinded. There was a light that shone from heaven, and Paul was blinded. And he had to return, uh, not return, but continue on to Damascus to a man named Ananias for the restoration of his vision. Now, it seems very reasonable to me under those circumstances that there would have been conversations of a spiritual and gospel nature between him and Ananias. Acts 9.19 tells us that Paul was with the disciples in Damascus, um, the words are, for some days, and he was proclaiming the gospel in the synagogues. Surely he would have had many spiritual, gospel-oriented conversations with those disciples in Damascus. And surely he must have learned something from them. So what is he saying here when he says, I was not taught the gospel? Well, what I believe he is saying is that the gospel in its essential bare elements is what Paul received by direct divine revelation. That is what Paul is defending here. I say that because we don't, um, we don't need to bear a burden of going down this rabbit hole of tracing out Paul's life prior to this claim and finding some aha place in scripture where he likely learned something from someone else. Commentators have to deal with that because people make such claims. So, like when he went to Jerusalem but only saw Peter, James, and John for 15 days. We'll see that at the end of chapter 1. Um, we don't need to try to defend that Paul didn't have any conversations that were spiritual or gospel-oriented or that he didn't learn anything from them. What he received by direct divine revelation was the gospel in its essential elements. Troublers had risen up against Paul in Galatia and were claiming that his gospel was from some lesser source, that he must have learned his gospel from apostles that came before him who hadn't ravished the church, who hadn't persecuted them with such zeal, and who had actually walked the earth with Christ himself. They said, this Paul guy, he came after. We're appealing to this higher authority. We've got Peter, and we've got James, and we've got John. And you know what? They hold to circumcision. Their claim was that Paul must have been delivered the gospel from them, but he misunderstood it. For how can we get rid of the tradition of circumcision? How could the laws of the Old Testament not have any bearing on salvation just because this Christ came? Surely Paul is confused, so his opponents said. But Paul brings his gospel from the only source that can alter such traditions, God himself. A quick note about the next, the, the ending words in his thesis. 
it says in, I'm on the wrong book here, in Galatians 1, 12, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So just a quick note about those words, a revelation of Jesus Christ. When Paul says this, it is unclear in the grammar whether he is saying a revelation from Christ or a revelation about Christ. For example, in the earlier quote that I gave you from Leon Morris, it's apparent that he felt Paul received this revelation from Christ himself. Either way, I don't think it has a significant impact on the meaning of the text. Christ is divine. Therefore, whether or not the text says he received it from Christ directly is, in a sense, immaterial. Since he is one and the same with the Father, on the other hand, the gospel is indeed a message about Christ. So if he received the gospel from any source for that matter, if it was faithful, then he certainly received a revelation about Christ. Now I say this because we have to be careful about reading something into the text that's not there. It is reasonable to assume that Christ delivered the gospel directly to Paul in his conversion experience. Is it not? You read that, you read that passage and it seems very likely to conclude, well, Jesus Christ himself gave Paul the gospel. Is it in this text? It's not really clear. Now, I almost didn't put this in the sermon. Sometimes you, you talk about things like this and people say, you're just splitting hairs, come on. Those details are kind of uh, dragging us down, they're boring, they make a sermon uninteresting. Um, I put it in there. My reply to that would be, well, if Jesus had concern about jots and tittles, we ought to pay attention to the various genitive cases in the word of God. In God's infinite wisdom, he saw fit to put there and preserve for our benefit for more than 2,000 years these words. This is God's word. Uh, ministers and indeed everyone need to handle it carefully. And I do try to take it quite seriously. We all ought to take it seriously and sometimes that means you spend a lot of time on one word. So a brief word of application on um, his thesis. This is a convenient place to mention a word of application. To the Christians listening, you must be in the word regularly. Do you struggle with that? Is it a burden to read God's word? Have you lost interest in it? Has anybody ever found themselves like that? I sure have. In my own Christian experience, I have had to ask God more than once that he stir up my desire and thirst for knowledge of spiritual things. You must be honest with yourself and honest with God. If you don't want to read the word, bring it to the Lord in prayer. Tell him. Tell him you want to desire the word like a deer pants for water, but you just don't, and you need his grace and mercy. Tell him to help your sinful, dismissive disposition towards his word. In my experience, when I have prayed such things, that has never, ever gone unanswered. And so be honest with yourself and before God. Confess your true desires towards spending time in the word and ask him for help. I recently heard a pastor teaching a group of aspiring ministers say that for most people in attendance to services week after week, the Sunday services are likely the only exposure that they have to spiritual matters or the word all week. I sure hope that's not true. May it not be true for us. Seek the Lord in prayer on this matter and just spend time in the word. If that means spending five minutes, do it. If that means reading one or two verses five times throughout the day, over and over, then do it. If that means you have one minute before you have to run out the door, open it and read a verse somewhere. 
you will find that spending time in the Word will foster a desire in your heart to continue to spend more time in the Word. For us, it's typically not a, um, it's not for lack of resources or time that we are too illiterate in the Word. You have time for it, and you need it in your walk with Christ. Along a similar line of thought, if you are reading the Word and you find yourself wondering about something that you just read, maybe something doesn't make sense or it makes you think of something else you read somewhere else, I'd encourage you at least to occasionally not let that go. Scratch that itch a little deeper. Strive to understand what God has said. And you know what? It might mean that you don't get through your list for that day. If it makes you think of a verse somewhere else, look at that verse. Look at that verse and compare it to what you just read. If you need a resource like a a Thompson Chain reference Bible or something like that, then go to it. If it makes you think of a subject, you can type it in online and, and look at other verses that talk about that subject. I've never ignored that impulse to dig deeper in a text. Um, Reverse that, I've never not ignored that um, and went forward with digging deeper in a text and then regretted it. Keep in mind that the Spirit works in your heart as you read the Word, and sometimes that comes in the form of those, I wonder what this really means, questions in your head. Occasionally, don't let those things go. Dig in and find out. So much for Paul's proposition that the gospel is of divine origin. In the verses that follow, all the way through the end of our passage today and continuing on into chapter 2, Paul argues in support of his proposition that he just gave in verses 11 and 12, that the gospel is not from man, therefore it is of divine origin origin. Just a few points. Um, I don't know what you'd call these. Some, some conclusions from uh, what, how Paul frames his proposition. There is an undergirding presupposition here. There's an assumption that God alone has authority. Isaiah 45.5 says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Daniel 4.35 says of the Lord, For his dominion, his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? If this is not an undergirding, common presupposition between Paul, the Galatians, and his opponents, his argument won't work. If he is not, if it is not just given that God is the ultimate final authority, it would make no difference to his argument whether he received his gospel from man or from God. So it follows that what was held in common between Paul, his audience, and his opponents is that when a message is truly received from God, it is a message with authority. Note also Paul's gracious, but um, uh, I don't, I don't want to say passive-aggressive. It, it's not, that doesn't really fit. Maybe I'll say clever way of communicating with the Galatians. He doesn't address his opponents directly. His chief concern is to win over the Galatian Christians. But he does address his opponents passively. This maintains, in his tone, a character of persuasiveness while not neglecting to answer the slander his opponents were bringing to him. This is a character of Paul's argument that continues to pop up as we shall see today. Has anybody read any James Dobson book? got a lot of books about disciplining children. If you read his books, um, he, he complains about other people a lot. And then if you read other books, there's this back and forth. It's almost as if these authors are just writing to each other. Um, I, I remember because when 
Jen was studying early childhood education, she had to read some Dobson and then some other books, and, and she said, these guys are just fighting with each other. So Paul is avoiding that. His concern is, I need to win over the Galatians. They're going to lose the gospel. I need to win them over. This isn't about me. This isn't about these bad things these opponents have said about me. I have to win over the Galatians. And so in Paul's disposition, we see that while he is defending himself, he is not defending himself for the sake of himself. There's a greater cause to defend here than Paul's own ego. The Galatian Christians were being led astray by troublers who would distort the gospel. And it is a matter, remember, of eternal life and death. He must win them over. Paul could have taken great personal offense at what was being said about him. But it's obvious that he puts himself aside for the sake of the elect in Galatia. We ought to ask ourselves, how do we defend ourselves? It's not necessarily wrong to defend yourself. You might be slandered, um, and sometimes you have to answer and defend yourself. But as we do that, usually we are defending ourselves simply for the sake of ourselves. Because we are a God in our own eyes. Worthy of being defended and absolved of any wrongdoing at any cost. So Paul gives us an example of how to defend ourselves without doing it for the very sake of ourselves. Okay, moving on to our next verses, which begin Paul's argument. Look at verses 13 through the first part of 16 in Galatians chapter 1. I'll read it for you. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul's actions against the church before the road to Damascus experience were devastating. If his calling was of divine means, this supports his proposition that the message he brings as a result of that calling is also of divine origin. Paul has quite a story to tell of his calling. He has a story that can be corroborated by people still alive at the time he was writing this letter, or I should say likely still alive at the time he was writing this letter. Indeed, this story is already known by the Galatians because Paul starts this section indicating that he's reminding them of something that they are already aware of. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. Paul's methods here serve to defend the gospel itself and his call to the apostleship at the same time. Again, he addresses his opponents passively in a way that will help win over these Galatian Christians, but will not neglect addressing the slander of his opponents. So we'll look at this section as it comes to us. First, we'll look at what Paul says about his background in Judaism. Then we'll look at what he says about his calling. So Paul's background first. As I said, Paul's actions to the church, we must not forget, were absolutely devastating. Paul's life before his conversion experience on the road to Damascus was that of an enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, a ferocious enemy. And then when the time came, he was an enemy of his church. The law of the Old Testament was so ingrained into Paul's being that wrenching that thoroughly embedded part of him from his person would have been no easy task. Matthew Poole says of this section that Paul's actions against the church before his sudden conversion were so devastating that it would be hard to explain his conversion by any other way than by direct divine intervention. Paul brings out 
two things in this dialogue that will constitute how we examine his background. The severity of his persecutions and his zealousness for Jewish traditions. Of the severity of Paul's persecution of the Christian church, Paul says that he violently sought to destroy it. So let's look at that descriptor, violently destroy. What does that really mean? First, consider the word violently. The Greek word there actually sounds like our word for hyperbole. In English, a hyperbole is an obvious or intentional exaggeration. An extravagant statement or figure of speech not intended to be taken literally. Such as, I had to wait for an eternity to see the doctor today. Or when a well-fed teenage boy says, I'm starving. Those are hyperboles. The Greek word here means the state of exceeding to an extraordinary degree a point on a scale of extent. It means beyond all measure and proportion. So our ESV actually translating this violently is in the minority among the many common uh, translations that are used in our circles. Um, the NASB, ASV, King James, New King James all translate that word as beyond measure. The NIV translates it similarly as intensely. And in fact, only the RSV and NRSV translate the word as violently like the ESV does. Now, I'm not saying that violently is a bad translation. But because of how we read that word, it does require some qualification. In English, the word violent means acting with or characterized by uncontrolled, strong, rough force. So within that definition, there is a sense of excessiveness. But the word here is a descriptor of the excessive degree to which Paul wanted to realize his intent to destroy. To destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not necessarily meant to describe the physical harm that he brought upon the church as he was acting out on his previous intent. It is a matter of degree and not methods. On the other hand, it's very accurate to say he was violent in his actions against the church. We can see in Acts that Paul was quite violent in the physical sense as he carried out his ambitions to destroy it. In Acts 3, it says that Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In Acts 9.1, just before his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, it says that Paul breathed out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Think about how it words that. How often do you breathe? Like every few seconds or something like that? That's how much he was breathing out threats and murder against the church. He was bent on destroying the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> what we need to take from this is that Paul was absolutely hell-bent on the utter destruction of the church by any means necessary. He would have pulled all stops to realize his goal of utter destruction of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and to erase the church from history. And he had the political connections and therefore power to act out on his ambitions with unfettered severity. I know that salvation always requires direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. But the depths of sin from which Paul was plucked outwardly demonstrate in his case how obvious it was the divine intervention was absolutely necessary. But God didn't just save Paul. That would have demonstrated it right there. If he just saved him and he stopped persecuting the church and he just started attending the church in Damascus and was a good, uh, a good churchman there, that would have been enough to prove that it, it was divine intervention. But God didn't just save Paul. He called him to be a herald of the gospel to the Gentiles, even one of the chief apostles of history. So what Paul is doing is he's leveraging his background story, which was already known by the Galatians and his opponents, apparently, 
because it couldn't be, therefore it couldn't be questions. It's not going to be a matter of debate. It's already something settled. He's using that background to support his claim that, hey, I received the gospel by direct divine revelation, and I can point to this experience to back that up. In the second place, he mentions the zeal that he had for Jewish traditions. Apart from Paul's violent history against the church, contributing to the unlikelihood of his calling to salvation and the apostle, is the great zeal that he had for the traditions of Judaism at the time. He had advanced farther than many of his own age, he says. He had advanced farther in zeal for the traditions of the Jews. Now, I believe that Paul is adding to his previous argument to show that he did indeed receive the gospel by direct divine revelation, but I also think that this is another passive shot at his opponents. So far in the book, we only know that there is some problem with what the Galatians were beginning to believe with respect to the gospel. It hasn't said what the issue is. We have read ahead, so we've spoiled the story, spoiled the letter, so to speak. We know the ending, right? We know it's about circumcision and this law, gospel distinction. What is the function of the law in the new covenant? So we know what it is, but when you read Galatians up to this point, it doesn't say what it's about. All we know is that there's a controversy. Later in the letter, it's alluded to when Paul says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. That's our first clue. Ah, the issue circumcision. The specific issue becomes even more clear when Paul later describes his opposition to Peter in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. And then it becomes quite clear at the end of chapter 2 when Paul states his point explicitly that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. The Galatians were believing that you could be saved by works. And the specific manifestation of that was that they were believing that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, compare that with what Paul is saying here. His zeal for Jewish traditions. He says that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. This means that he was very zealous, most likely more so than his opponents, and he can demonstrate his zeal for Jewish traditions in how severely he persecuted the Christian church. It's as if he's saying to his opponents, you know what, they've got nothing on me as far as how much zeal I had for Jewish traditions. Paul has more reason to defend the tradition of circumcision then than his opponents do, based on his background. He is an unlikely opponent to the continued tradition of circumcision, yet he argues against it. It could be explained if he was given the gospel by divine revelation. And this supports his thesis that his gospel is of divine origin. Moving on to Paul's calling. So much for Paul's background. Now look at verse 15 through 16 for a brief account of his calling. He says there, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I want to mention here that Paul's calling was a monumental event in the history of the Christian church, and I don't think we recognize that today. In fact, it is no exaggeration, I believe, to say that Paul's calling to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and to the apostleship is the chief means by which God began to fulfill his covenant to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. As one theologian has said, after the resurrection of Jesus, no single event affected the course of the church's history so much as did the call of Paul. Other individuals were converted, Constantine even baptized an empire. But the change which occurred of Paul caused reverberations, many of which are still resounding in the church. So what I want to do is break down Paul's description of his calling into three points here. 
his predestination, his temporal call, and the root cause of his call. So first, Paul's predestination. The text says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born. The word there for separate means to remove one party from other parties so as to discourage or eliminate, to select one out of a group for a purpose, to set apart, to appoint. John Calvin says of this text, and this is a paraphrase, that this separation is a choosing by God. It is not a causing to act in a different way than others so as to be distinguished. Since it came up in the text, let's talk about predestination and election. In case there are any here who might not know that distinction, election is a choosing of persons out of a group, and predestination is a foreordination of purpose. Some men belong to the elect. All men are predestinated. Our confession puts it this way in chapter 3, paragraph 3. By the decree of God, for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, others being left to act in their sin, to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Those appointed to glory... Those appointed to be blameless and holy in the sight of God are called in Scripture the elect. Our confession uses this language in chapter 3, paragraph 6, where it says that as God hath appointed the elect unto glory, that's very much in line with Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, where Paul says to the Ephesians, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So, the elect are predestined for glory. The elect are predestined to be holy and blameless before an infinitely holy God. The elect are predestined to be adopted as sons and to be fellow heirs with Christ. Those not elected are foreordained to destruction being left to their own devices. Now, that gets into the issue of, uh, some of you may have heard, double predestination, which the confession does teach, but it does need to be qualified. The scriptures do not describe God's deep involvement in saving some in the same way as his involvement in leaving others to their damnation to the praise of his glorious justice. Think of what it takes to save a person from their sins. God sent his son into the world to be born of a woman that he would be like us in every way except for sin. He graciously preserved the line of David all the way back to Abraham, all the way up to Christ, that the Messiah would come. Jesus came, lived a sinless life, yet died the death of a sinner, so that his people would not know the wrath of God. Jesus suffered the wrath that we deserve, and his righteousness is now accredited to our account. God, through the Holy Spirit, came to us and violated our desire for darkness and caused us to be born again. That is a miracle. We were set free from the bonds of sin and our entire nature changed such that we now desire Christ. And even now, Christ ever lives and intercedes for us at the right hand of God the Father and is preparing a place in heaven for us even now. It takes a lot to save a person. We talk about the precious blood of Jesus and what a precious Christ was paid that we can have peace with God. That's what it took to save us. God was deeply involved in our salvation. What a great price was paid on our behalf. But do you know what it takes to leave a person to their damnation? Nothing. That work is already done. It is in that sense that our confession teaches double predestination. 
when it says that God left the non-elect to act in their sin to their just condemnation. Now, in Paul's case here in Galatians 1.15, I use the word predestination to describe his experience because the setting apart that Paul describes is a setting apart for a purpose. However, there is some interchangeability in these words, um, I believe, and that becomes very apparent in Ephesians 1 uh, verses 4 and 5 that I just read because it says he chose us, he elected us, but for a purpose, that we should be holy and blameless. And then it says he predestined us to adoption. And so he did elect us to a purpose. And so there's a distinction there, but it is kind of a theological distinction. And there is some, there's overlap is what I'm trying to say. I really do favor predestination here because Paul is getting at his call to the apostleship. Paul's road to Damascus experience is quite unique. And not just because the risen Lord appeared to him and spoke with him directly, in addition to it being a description of his salvation experience and therefore his initial taking hold of, the, um, of his predestination to glory in general, it is an account of his specific calling to serve as an apostle to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is right there in the text. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles. This also appears in the account in Acts 9.15 when Christ says to Ananias about call, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul is again speaking against his opponents while seeking to win over his audience. He is being very specific on what happened to him on that road to Damascus. He was not just saved in an outwardly extravagant way. He was specifically and directly called to the office of apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His opponents were appealing to the older apostles, not older in age, but those apostles who had been apostles longer than him. Um, uh, those apostles who had walked with Christ and received um, instruction directly from his flesh and blood while he walked on this earth, um, Paul did not have that experience, and so they were appealing to what they said was a higher authority, but he said, no, no, I received my call directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know all these things already. If you don't believe me, you can ask uh Ananias, you can ask the brothers in Damascus. Surely Paul would have told that story many times to all the brothers in those few days while he stayed in Damascus. And so this lends legitimacy to his claim of the divine origin of the gospel. Um, just looking at the time, bear with me. I won't cover as much as I thought, and I wanted to get to one gospel application. Let's move on to Paul's temporal call. Um, we have Paul's calling to the apostleship in verse 15. But when the Lord who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now, I want to look at the miraculous nature of of Paul's calling here. Um, yes, and then and then there's a, an application after that, and then we can end. So first, the miraculous nature of Paul's call. Now, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is always a miracle. Always a miracle on par with raising the dead to life. For that is what happens spiritually when sinners come to know the Lord. Now, I don't mean to deny that truth by saying that Paul's calling in particular was miraculous. And what I'm also not referring to here is the outwardly supernatural events surrounding Paul's conversion and call to the apostleship. The account in Acts says that a light shined from heaven and the voice of Jesus asked that question, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul, then called Saul, was blinded by this light and is led by the hand to Damascus to a man named Ananias who heals him of his blindness. 
That is a wonderful, miraculous description of salvation. These are supernatural events, but it is not those that I'm referring to when I say that Paul's calling was miraculous. The miracle is that the Lord wrenched the hate and darkness from Paul's heart, the extent to which he had it for the church, in an instant. Matthew Poole comments here, He softened Paul's heart to love this Jesus as Lord and Savior, whom he just hated as an imposter to the Jewish religion and a mere man. He had devoted his life to the destruction of his church, the Church of Christ, which he had paid for with his precious blood. God completely overwhelmed Paul's Jewish biases in an instant. He melted his hatred for the Christians and the Christian church and their Lord Jesus Christ and caused him not only to love the Lord that he had just hated, but to proclaim his name with a zeal matched only by the zeal that he used to have in persecuting the church. There is power in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus saves to the uttermost. And so I can't let that slip by without drawing a gospel application. I think it's safe to say that most here have not committed the actual sins, the outward sins is what I mean by saying that, the actual sins to the level of atrocity that Paul had at the time of his conversion. Paul was the Jewish Gestapo of his day, dragging men and women from their homes, likely separating them from their children, that he might torture them out of their newfound faith or murder them should they refuse. He was ambitious about doing this. He would... He would have had to seek out leaders and solicit their aid in order to get the letters he requested from the synagogue so that he could travel to Damascus, which in those days was probably no small task. He traveled to Damascus specifically so that he could wreak havoc in the church. He looked on the stoning of Stephen with approval, but his thirst for blood was not satisfied, for we read in Acts 8.3 that he was ravaging the church after that, going house to house, dragging off men and women. His actions were consistent with the secret police of the Nazi regime or Stalin's USSR in more modern times. But Jesus broke him in an instant. Jesus gave him a heart of flesh in place of his heart of stone. And then he set him on fire to proclaim that name that he had once persecuted so that the whole church would praise God because of him even before they knew him by face. That wonderful power of Jesus to save in Paul's story is the same power that Jesus saves with today. If you're not a Christian, you can go to him now. There is no sin so bad he can't wash it away. There's nothing you have to do before Christ will accept you. You simply must go to him. There is nothing Paul did to get ready. He was surprised on his way to kill Christians, and God melted his heart. Jesus has power to save. And you may ask, how do I go to Christ? What does that mean? And the answer is, you must repent of your sins. You must believe on him. In repenting, you will feel remorse. You will confess your sins and own them as yours and make no excuses and you will turn away from them. That means you don't do them anymore, at least as a tenor of your life. And then you will put all your hope and all your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul. It really is that simple. And to anyone who has family members that they wish would come to know the Lord, Maybe family members who are sick, who are old, who have refused to come to know the Lord, or who even hate hearing the very name of Jesus. Uh, If you're like me, um, you have little faith sometimes with people you might call difficult converts. Oh, that, that family member will never come to know the Lord. 
They hate Christianity so much I can't even mention an inkling of it before they're all over me. They're not going to come to know the Lord. If Jesus can melt the heart of a murderer, he can melt their hearts too. And so don't give up hope. Um, Don't give up hope while they have breath. Pray for them. Be ready to share the gospel with them as opportunity arises. Which means, going back to our previous application, you need to be in the word. So you can explain what the gospel is. So that you can give a defense for the hope that is in you. Win them over. Be faithful in your regular duties. Studying God's word. Spending time in your prayer closet. And take advantage of all the means of grace that God gives you while you're still here. And so take heart. The very worst of your loved ones are not outside of the power of Christ to save. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you for giving us the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that there is power in the blood of the Lamb. We thank you that Jesus saves and that we can put all of our hope and trust in him and that we have a present peace with God. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage the Christians today, that our faith would increase toward the blessedness of the gospel, and that you would indeed save some, even those quote-unquote difficult cases in our eyes. Give us the faith to know, Lord, that you do save to the uttermost, and there is no patient uh, too far gone for you to utterly change their nature. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.